This is really consistent with our mission, which is to create a planet run by the sun and to really try to make a difference in climate change. Hey there, solar warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled once again that you've chosen to spend this time with me. And I know you're going to find value in today's timely episode. Today's guest has one of the most intriguing and possibly most important jobs in our industry. Yet, the actual work that she and her team do remains a great mystery to many of us, namely me, until today. So tune in while I sit down with Ann Hoskins live at Solar Power Puerto Rico to ask the question, what exactly does a chief policy officer do anyway? Ann has a fascinating story and she is leading Sunrun into uncharted waters by paving the way for their DER products, opening key new markets like Illinois and Puerto Rico and so much more. And in case you missed it, on Tuesday I interviewed one of Ann's team members, Chris Rauscher, who was instrumental in helping Sunrun win big in the recent New England Capacity Auction. Since you'll be over at mysuncast.com looking for that episode, why don't you go ahead and check out more than 160 other inspiring and influential leaders' stories. You can actually search each episode by name or topic just simply scrolling to the bottom of the homepage. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Solar Warriors. Today, we have the distinct pleasure of welcoming a guest that represents one of the true leaders, pioneers, icons in our solar industry, and uh, is certainly going to help us understand and perhaps break down and, and really get into the details of how our solar markets develop. Ann Hoskins is the chief policy officer for Sunrun. If you're unfamiliar with Sunrun, Sunrun is the largest residential solar and storage provider in the U.S. and has uh, for more than a decade been a pioneer in the residential solar business, recently taken over as the, well, not so recently now, but taken over as the leader in the United States. Very, very phenomenal leadership. Also a woman-led uh, business founded uh, as well by Lynn. Anne has a remarkable story. She previously served as commissioner on the Maryland Public Service Commission. And she's been on the boards of the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, as well as time in the private sector and public sector as an attorney and executive. She's held various positions, including senior officer at PSEG, and as you'll hear today, is an apt spokesperson for our industry. And thank you for joining us on Suncast. Great to be here, Nico. Indeed. Here we are in the heart of uh, La Isla del Encanto in Puerto Rico. We're uh, enjoying what seems to be a breath of fresh air in the time of Puerto Rico's renewal. It's been an exciting morning. You know, today we kicked off the Solar Power Conference for Puerto Rico CISA, the trade association. And I have to say of all the conferences that I've attended, and I've attended many in my career, uh, this was the most uh, exciting start because we had before us the governor of Puerto Rico and the two senators who supported 
transformational energy legislation, Senator uh, Batia and Senator Selhammer, all uniformly speak to the critical role that not just solar, but specifically distributed solar and storage are going to play in transforming the electric system in Puerto Rico. It was uh, really phenomenal and inspirational and I think is going to really help motivate all of the participants here to take the steps they need to take to push forward what we need to do in Puerto Rico. Yeah. And you guys have been leading for some time now in this post Maria, as many refer to it, this post Maria revival of the Puerto Rico market. Your local partner here, Maximo Solar, is the largest player on the island at this point. They've really uh, dug in and as a local player, learned how to cater to the residential market with products that are useful and productive and bringing financing to the market that is desperately needed. Yeah. And just to add, we have two other partners as well, New Energies, as well as Windmar. But our strategy when we entered the Puerto Rico market a year ago was, and our commitment was to work through local partners. You know, we believe, and we heard that this morning as well, I believe from uh, Senator Batia, of, you know, the critical role that we want to make sure that with the energy transformation, it's creating opportunities for the people who live in Puerto Rico. So they have a stake in this and they grow from this as well. So it's been really uh, successful so far. We're really, you know, pleased to have these partners. And the way we work together is they are the folks on the ground working with their neighbors to show the benefits of solar and storage, installing the systems. We're able to provide the expertise and the access to financing, to design, to customer service. And so together, we're able to bring these different strengths and, you know, hopefully bring these services as quickly as possible to people. You know, remarking on legislation, one of the things that does get lost for a lot of us, especially on the sales and marketing side, who don't have a policy background, is exactly how this legislation comes about. We were talking a bit offline about what does it mean to be a chief policy officer. I want to put that within the context, however, of a broader lens on your career. You're an attorney by trade. How did you get into the energy business? And then I'm really curious from there, why and how you decided that the solar industry and and the renewable power industry was where you wanted to focus the thrust of your career? I think it really all started about 35 years ago uh, when I was graduating from college. I had studied applied economics at Cornell. In a, it was very applied to environmental and agricultural issues. So from the very beginning, I was exposed to a lot of sustainability issues. They weren't really called that at the time, but that's really what is at the heart of, of applied economics there anyway, and resource economics. And I spent a session right after I graduated working for the New York State Assembly Energy Committee on energy efficiency. So this was in the, you know, in the mid-80s at a time when we had just gone, you know, it was post Jimmy Carter, post having the solar panels on the roof of the White House, but a recognition that we needed to do something about energy efficiency. So early on in my career, I had had an interest in this. But then, you know, for some period of time, I I really started to get engaged more in just regulatory law and, and issues of economics and regulation. And the first part of my career was largely focused in telecommunications, which was really interesting and fascinating portion of my career. It was in the 2000s where we saw the transformation. I was in the wireless telecommunications world, worked for what became Verizon Wireless at a time where you saw really significant cost declines 
and the role of competition in driving forward advancement and open access to communications. And during that time, really just from a, a former colleague who I had worked with in the governor's office in New Jersey, who now is the, the CEO of PSEG, had reached out to me and said, hey, will you come on up? We want to work on climate change. Would you be the leader of our, of our uh, policy organization at PSEG? And that's what brought me into the energy world. It was kind of a leap. I was, you know, really having a really interesting time as a regulatory lawyer at Verizon Wireless, again, at a real transformational time, but saw uh, this was right at the time of the Wexman-Markey legislation and the effort to try to have a federal legislation to attack climate change. And so I decided to take the shift and I'm really glad I did. I mean, I, I loved the work that I did in telecommunications, but it really was something that really harkened back to what my initial interest was when I you know, got out of college um, in the early 80s. And so I spent about seven years and really learned about the energy industry and learned about, you know, PSEG is a very interesting company because they not only have the distribution utility, but they also uh, were a competitive generator in the PJM market. So I learned a great deal. But after about seven years of that, really wanted to try to see if I could get back into public service. I've been in and out of public service at different points in my career and was fortunate to be given the opportunity by Governor O'Malley to become a regulator. Mm -hmm. And At the time, some people questioned, why do you want to be a state regulator? But I had really seen from the work I had done the power of state regulation in these markets and in the transformation, whether it was from telecom transformation or what we were starting to see in energy transformation. So it was, uh, you know, also just an amazing opportunity to be able to go in and see what a difference you could make for consumers as well as for the market by trying to set the rules the right way. Then you ask, you know, well, how did I decide then to go to solar when my term ended? And one of the things that really struck me as a regulator was that we have just a really uneven playing field, I guess is the way I'd put it, that the utilities had so many more resources when they would come before, in this case, the Maryland Public Service Commission. You know, they had really scores and scores of utilities and lobbyists. They were able to get the cost of that advocacy recovered from ratepayers, And I wasn't seeing enough advocates from either the environmental community or from alternative uh, providers. And so I really did believe as I ended my term that, you know, where could I have the greatest impact for one would be to try to be on the competitive side, really hearkening back to the work I did in telecom for Verizon Wireless that, you know, I believe in competitive markets. I believe that there's better ways that many of the reasons we have natural monopolies back from 100 years ago are no longer necessary and that we could do better. But also, I really feel very strongly about the concerns on climate change. And we heard it this morning from the governor. You know, this really is a preeminent issue of our time. You know, we are running out of time to really make a difference. And I don't think we can rely on regulated monopolies to push us to where we need to go. So I was very fortunate, just as my term was ending, for there to be an opportunity to go serve. There's an opening at Sunrun. Uh, They were looking for a new uh, chief policy officer. Was this a new position that was created? Uh, No, no, No. there was just a change and there was an opening. And so I really thought, wow, you know, I've been in the mid-Atlantic and the Northeast my whole career. And uh, to think I had the opportunity to be able to go out 
you know, join a company that was just at that point, you know, about 10 years old, uh, bring some of my experience, you know, to that company was really, you know, more than I could have asked for. And, and it's been a fabulous uh, opportunity. I'm just approaching, you know, three years at Sunrun now. And did you move out to San Francisco? I did. What? I did. I relocated. That's uh, a big change. I was living in Baltimore at the time. You know, sometimes there's a, you know, a time and a place for everything. And, and the stars aligned for me. I have uh, four children and my youngest child was graduating from high school right as my term was ending. So I was going to be an empty nester. I have a husband who was a Californian. And oh, wow. so uh, the idea of us up and moving across the country, a whole lot easier to do when you're not bringing kids along. You know, so it's just an opportunity all you know across the board to expand what I was doing, take on a new challenge and try to apply my skills in another way. Did you look at other companies before going to Sunrun? No, I really didn't. I mean, I was starting to think for some time what I wanted to do, but it was just one of those situations where the opportunity came up. And like I said, the stars really seemed to align on this. To say another really strong factor for me to join Sunrun was Lindert, to go out and meet with her and Ed Fencer as well, who's the co-founder. But, you know, I have had the privilege of working for a number of strong women in my career who have really had a big influence on me. I worked at a nonprofit for a few years in the late 80s, a woman named Linda Tarwhalen, who had been very uh, important in the labor movement uh, and ran a, what's no longer exists, but a progressive policy nonprofit that supported legislators across the country who were trying to uh, make progressive change. And uh, she was she was just a very good role model for me at a time when I was early in my career. And I also had uh, essentially a chief policy officer who I worked for, a chief advisor uh, to Governor Kane. I worked for Governor Thomas Kane in New Jersey for, for three years. Uh, Brenda Davis was her name. And I was like in my early 20s and she was 40 and she was an amazing leader. And I felt much the same when I met Lynn. I thought, you know, here was a, a woman who was still, you know, pretty early in her career, but, you know, had really shown leadership and commitment. And it was just, you know, a thrilling opportunity for me to you know, be able to go to work for a woman CEO, you know, at this point in my career. So you mentioned a, a title that I brought up is, is, is your title, Chief Policy Officer. I feel that by and large, that might be something that folks don't really understand at a core level, functional level. Would you help us understand the work of a Chief Policy Officer? Could you explain for us, given that Sunrun's a nationwide company, you're, you're involved in so much at, at a state and federal level, how does your work affect and influence the work of Sunrun as a whole? It's completely critical to Sunrun's success. And that's one of the reasons that I feel it is important to have the leader of the policy organization be given the title of chief policy officer, like we have a chief financial officer or, you know, chief operating officer. Because even though we're in a competitive market, in order to succeed in the distributed solar field, you need to make sure you have the right regulatory framework. And the reason is that we are competing against 
regulated entities who we're dependent on in order to make sure that we can be interconnected to the grid, in order to make sure that our customers can have fair compensation, you know, in order to make sure that policymakers will be supportive when we are looking for important incentives such as storage incentives. Can I ask you just for a quick definition of regulated entity? Like you mentioned working for the Maryland Public Utility Commission that your job was to is to be a regulator. I feel like even that term is one that is bandied about, but, but I feel like really folks on the ground doing the work of selling these projects probably don't know what a regulator is. Would you help us understand that within the context of how you interact with these people? Sure. So, you know, there's 50 public service commissions in the 50 states. There's a public service commission uh, here in, in Puerto Rico. Sometimes they have different title names. Uh, we also have federal regulators. You know, we've got the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. When I was a telecom lawyer, we had the FCC. So, uh, the reason you have regulation really goes back to my days in economic training, right? You have regulation because you had natural monopolies. And with a natural monopoly, you need to have regulation to make sure that they're not going to abuse their power. And that's really at the heart of why energy systems were regulated. When you'd have transmission and distribution lines, you didn't want to have hundreds of different multiple sets of, of lines. You recognize that there were economies of scale from having some shared system. And to make that work, you need to have rules, and then you also allow a rate of return. And that all made a lot of sense for a long period of time. But then probably like in the 90s, certainly in some parts of the country, there was a recognition that for generation, it wasn't a natural monopoly. There were actually alternatives where you could have competitive providers. And that's what we saw in many of the markets where I worked in the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast. And out of that, and we also saw that in telecommunications, so out of that, you started to see competitive alternatives. And while those competitive providers, whether it was a Verizon Wireless or whether it's a Sunrun, were not regulated per se, meaning that our rates of service were not regulated because we're not monopolies, we're very much affected by the way that the utilities are regulated. Because the utilities really, you know, are not necessarily on their own going to open their markets, right, or open their systems. And so we need to be able to have regulators who are going to recognize the value of competition and make sure that we have fair access. So whether it's things like, and legislators as well, so things like PERPA, things like, you know, that we heard about it this morning, the one of the really strong elements of this legislation, which I'll tell all the listeners they should get copies of. We can give you the, yeah, the English, version, you know, is just the English out today. version because we've got a great translator on my team. Everybody should look at it because it recognizes that it's not just about saying we need 100% renewables. It's also saying in order to do that, you need to have confidence that your customers are going to have net metering. You need to have confidence that you're going to be able to interconnect without it taking 100 days to do it. You know, you need to have confidence that, you know, we're going to have the support of our regulators and a process to ensure that there's fair competition. So that's why even if listeners out there are thinking, you know, I'm not regulated, I don't need to have a policy representation. We need more people at the table. That's one of my biggest concerns right now. Sunrun is really stepped up. I have an amazing team. There's 20 of us running around the country speaking to regulators and legislators, but there are many, many small companies out there that need to be heard, particularly in the states where they operate, to make sure that the regulators and legislators understand that these are the folks that are creating jobs, they're the folks that, 
you know, really depend on certainty. And we need more of them to come to the table. In summary, what I, what I think I understand is that because of the natural monopolies regulation, the process of regulation is simply the process of rulemaking that allows private industry to participate in the infrastructure that we've all agreed should and could be built as shared resources. Pretty much. And also the regulators now have the opportunity to start thinking about a different approach. It's hard to do, right? You have a system that's 100 years old. You have an obligation to make sure that everybody has service and universal service, but you realize it's getting old. You know, we're seeing that in California, the system is not working, right? We know with the wildfires, we've seen it in Puerto Rico with the hurricanes. So now we have the technology that we can do it differently. So that's where we need regulators to be a little bolder. And we need them to look at folks like we saw today with the governor and the two senators, because they are being bold and saying, there's another approach and we're going to set the framework for you to do that. It's hard. It's really hard for regulators when they have such strong utility interests in their states, uh, which again goes back to why at least I felt, where could I make the greatest difference? It was actually being on the side of trying to be a disruptor because there's a lot of inertia from just the status quo. Hey, are you still managing your solar development portfolio in Excel? I'll forgive you if you are, but if you've been slogging along, waiting for the perfect software solution to aid you in the transition to a true database platform, then you're in luck. My friends at FTC Solar created Atlas, a bit to scratch their own itch, but they didn't realize that they created something any developer can use. It's an enterprise-level, customizable database platform designed to support renewable energy project development. Accessible anywhere there's an internet connection, Atlas includes elements of CRM, project management, data storage, and finance in a single package that is solar-ready out of the box. With all the Atlas platform has to offer, it's no wonder solar developers are ditching the spreadsheets and switching to Atlas to manage their project portfolio. If you want to learn more and request your free trial, please head over to go.ftcsolar.com forward slash suncast. You could also just click on that FTC Solar banner at mysuncast.com. So Sunrun was here, just like everyone else was, sort of sounding out the market five years ago and didn't commit fully. How did you know that now was the time? And, and I would say that as an outside observer, it seems almost impossible to sort of know that now is the time. It almost feels like with Javier, with Carlos at Maximo Solar, that you guys as an industry decided that it was time. There were some catalysts that helped push that forward. Would you unpack that for me? We were really driven by the need here. When the hurricane hit, mm -hmm. we had people, and I'm really proud to say it really originated with the policy team, uh, with Chris, with um, some of the other folks on our team who, you know, we were watching this unfold and they were saying, you know, we should be able to help with that. Right. We have the ability to help with this. This is not being responded to. The utilities, remember, I mean, it was a disaster the way it was responded to with a whitefish situation. Um, the major utilities on the mainland were not coming and providing a support they do as they do for other types of disasters on the mainland. And so it was very much driven by folks organically at Sunrun saying, what can we do? This is really consistent with our mission, which is to create a planet run by the sun and to really try to make a difference in climate change. And so from that, that's where we reached out to different partners we knew, Empowered by Light, uh, some fire uh, station uh, folks, Richard Burt, 
pull together resources to come down and support the, you know, just provide emergency relief, assistance, yeah. relief to fire stations. And I think through that process, we drew very, you know, we were very attached to the opportunity that we thought that this was really an opportunity for us to make a difference, but also to demonstrate what we believe is the future for the entire country. And here you have, you know, sort of a necessity driving, you know, a, a real opportunity for us to try to work with people in Puerto Rico. And then we also, you know, met tremendous leaders, you know, Senator Batia, Senator Selhammer, uh, the governor, everyone we met with was very open to this, which is not the experience we have in every state. And so when you see that you've got the leadership, and then you have the opportunity because we were successful. And, and, and it was very powerful to see that, you know, in the course of a day, you could have a fire station that was not able to answer their phones. And we go up there, put the system on the roof. And now we've created this this um, really important social benefit. And this is at a time, again, where we spent we have to spend way too much of our time in some of these mainland states defending distributed solar, defending net metering. And I have felt for some time, and we're working really hard at this, that, you know, the utilities have done, you know, a very successful job in defining us as a problem. But we are an opportunity, right? We are an opportunity to provide resiliency, to do this quickly, you know, a house at a time, a fire station at a time. And so when we saw that we had government leaders who embraced what we were doing, that was really the opportunity. And then also when we saw that there were partners down here, that was really critical to us. We were not going to come, you know, from San Francisco and, and bring a bunch of people down here to, to start putting solar on roofs. We wanted to make sure that we had partners who were going to be here. So when we were able to find our partners, that combination with the leadership and the, the welcoming leadership who, you know, we had, you know, people who were in these positions referring us to folks like Javier, you know, we had, you know, we were able to find talent and build the relationships we needed. And so that made, that made the decision to come invest here make a lot of sense. Well, on the topic of leadership and transition, Sunrun is a number of firsts, but among them, Sunrun recently in, in New England had a major victory for the industry on the topic of DERs and aggregation. You know, as someone who's been in the industry since 2006 and has seen the rise of companies like Sunrun and SolarCity and Vivint and fall of, of some of, of, of peer companies, it's always in the back of our minds, okay, referrals are the lifeblood of this business. We have end customers in homes that are going to be there for years. We now have become service providers to them, not just a one-time deal where we put solar on their house and we leave them alone for 30 years especially with the model of Sunrun and Solar City and Vivint, that you are their partner for 25, 30 years. Four or five years ago, there was this notion in the market, well, what would happen if we put out storage into these homes? What would happen the day the technology arrives that we could control that storage to redeploy that energy back into the grid? What would that do for the grid? And what would that do for the renovation, if you will, of our grid infrastructure? And all of a sudden, Sunrun makes it happen. For many, seemingly sort of out of the blue, like, oh my gosh, Sunrun did this. Can you take me to the to the birthplace of that within Sunrun? And when you first became aware that this was a thing that could really that could really happen, I'm sure it excited you. And then maybe you can explain in the words that you that you think are appropriate what you consider this as a product and why you think it needs to exist. 
you know, I've only been here, you know, less than three years. And the change in this time has been dramatic in that really with more accessibility to storage. And, you know, we really started offering storage in Hawaii, really out of necessity because there were some regulatory changes. And also it, it made sense economically with the with the price of power there and, and the need for some self-supply alternative. And then we were able to, as storage, you know, we've been really fortunate because the storage prices continue to be declining, as have the solar panel prices, that the economics, you know, continue to improve. But you know, we looked in California next where we started to, we were facing time of use rates and because time of use rates were applied to solar customers. And with that, we really needed, again, and this is one of the benefits of competition, you know, as a competitive provider, we needed to find ways to meet the needs of our customers, right? They weren't just, you know, we weren't, you know, just given the whole territory and, you know, just do what you can. We, we really wanted to make sure we could provide competitive offerings for our customers. And so storage really provided part of the answer in California so that customers could manage the value of solar in the middle of the day was becoming very low. The cost of power and those shoulder hours was becoming higher. We were hearing a lot of complaints about the duck curve, some blaming on us. We're like, well, hold on. No, we're not the blame. Like we actually have the nimbleness. We can help solve this. And so that really drove us again, sort of in response to that need and we were able to work with our sales teams to help explain this to our customers. And so that kind of drove it. And then we had Puerto Rico, again, which was the resiliency issue where we saw, wait a second, now we have a situation where we really need to have where batteries can provide in, in combination with solar a real alternative for customers. And so this really evolved with us responding to what customers needed. And in all three of those places, we had different customer needs, but we were able to find a way to utilize batteries and solar together to respond to it. And in the course of that, I think, you know, one of the great things, too, at Sunrise, you're able to attract amazing people uh, who want to work here and, and believe in the mission. And uh, we brought in Dr. Audrey Lee, who's incredible, uh, incredible colleague. Uh, she's, you know, a Ph.D. in engineering, has a background in policy, had worked for the CPUC and had done um, some work for another storage company and came in with this uh, goal of helping us determine how we can provide grid services and defining what that means and taking the power of these batteries and solar together and doing what we, we've been saying, even with solar, we've believed from the beginning, you know, solar provides benefits to society beyond the individual user. We knew that, right? Solar provided, you know, shared energy through net metering. It provided clean energy benefits. But now, once you had batteries and you could control the energy and you could actually demonstrate capacity that could be relied on at, at certain times, this was a real game changer. And we started out by trying to work in states like in California, where they had different dockets open, where utilities were required to look at alternatives. It's also in New York, right? The sort of non-wires alternative solicitation, where there was a recognition that you could essentially provide demand response type resources. And we tried to do that. But then we stepped back and that, you know, there's a bigger picture here because we have some markets, you know, you could try to work with utilities, which we're happy to do and wanting to do with different levels of success, again, according to how open they are to these opportunities. But in the market states where we've got RTOs and ISOs, 
what if, you know, what if we do look at those capacity markets? Because once you start to get thousands of these units, we now have the capacity with advanced inverters and with the kind of technical expertise we're, we're developing and communications uh, connections to aggregate, pull these together and say, this is essentially the same as a power plant. You don't have to build a natural gas peaker. We can actually aggregate 5,000 units and we can make the commitment because we can control that, which was always the, the big issue with energy, right? You weren't right. able to control it's it. Now it's, yeah. now it's controllable. Use it or lose it. So we can control it and we can commit to these market operators that we will be there when they need it. And by doing that, we can get compensation that we can share with our customers. And this is what... That you share with your customers. Well, as in pricing, right? I mean, in the sense of like, it's just another, it's another stream of revenue um, that whether it was, you know, net metering from the energy, whether it was the capacity, it's making this all more economical in different parts of the country. And so... We saw that New England ISO was open. Uh, not all of the markets are open right now to looking at aggregated uh, distributed resources. Uh, we're still waiting on a, an order from FERC uh, that hopefully will open the door on that further. But New England ISO was. And so we were able to qualify and bid in successfully. So we've made a commitment now to meet capacity in 2022. And to do that, we estimate we will be needing to provide solar and storage to about 5,000 homes. So now we've got that. We're working with our sales teams, right? We're working with our business development teams, and we are putting together the offerings so that customers can be part of this really interactive energy system. For the uninitiated, the way that power companies historically have ensured, I mean, if you think about the need to supply water, for example, to a community of a thousand people. If you have a pipe, literally a pipe that is too small, then you are constrained by how much water you can supply to that community. So therefore you have to pay for a larger pipe to be installed, whether or not the, vo the volume of water necessary is flowing. And it's usually determined by, well, if everyone in the community turned on their faucet at the same time, this is the size pipe we'd need. And the way that drills down to generation is... We have all of these traditionally now, you know, traditionally fossil fuel generators that, uh, that have what's known as capacity that's in standby. And they get paid as an incentive mechanism to build these plants, not only the monetary value of supplying that electricity onto the grid, but a standby capacity that the grid can count on if they ever need to, in this case, to further the analogy, turn all the water on at the same time. For those of us who've been working in Latin America, like we're very familiar with how, with this struggle to get any sort of renewables outside of hydro to qualify for capacity and have all been sort of waiting for the day that storage would, would arrive at a scale and in a controllable way. So what Sunrun has effectively done is now qualified for the first time legally in the United States, a generator as a standalone ready to deploy asset. The miracle in the modern age is that it's virtual. It's not all built in one place. Right. And what many people don't understand, and this is sort of, I want to make sure I'm clear on this, is you didn't go to New England ISO and say, we have 5,000 customers and we can turn them on tomorrow. You said, we have a mechanism through which we can guarantee you capacity. Then you now being approved for that have three years to build that capacity. Right, because it's a three-year forward auction and it's not a whole lot different than 
a traditional utility or, you know, um, generation company saying, okay, I'm going to bid. And if I win, I'll go build that peaker. It's going to take me three years to do it. So it's helpful because now we have the commitment. We know we're going to have that resource. We can go out. We can incorporate that in the offering that we make the customers. And then, you know, we will work to reach our commitment. It's very similar. Just to clarify, the amount from the capacity is is not the market maker here. It's not what drove us to to, ta- to decide to invest in New England and offer services across New England. We the New England's a really important part of our market anyway, and an equally important element of this was not just New England ISOs. We'd say you know positive uh, policies but also the policies of the states uh, that we're going to be operating in. And we had a really important decision right before we bid from uh, the Massachusetts Commission, which confirmed that we and our customers have control of the capacity rights for that solar oh, storage, so which was very important and which had been contested by the utilities. Well, the utilities were saying that because they had given incentives for this. Right. That they thought that they should have the capacity. But in the past, you know, they haven't taken advantage of these opportunities, which again, again, goes to the value of having some competitive providers because we were able to see that this was yet another value stream that could be useful in expanding access to solar and storage. And that's what we saw and we drove. But it was really important to get that clarity of what the regulatory rules were and the rights to different attributes, because it's only with the clarity of you know who has those rights that you're able to then you know, with confidence, bid into a market. So it was it was a very, a very important, a lot of great work by our team in, in New England. You no doubt have a phenomenal team. We have the best in the country. <laughs> and this is all extremely exciting. If I were given two hours, I would take them with you. I would love to have you back the next time, hopefully closer to when these amazing uh, activities are taking place within your organization. We can talk about them here with the Suncast tribe and certainly to be able to finish out what many who are faithful listeners to Suncast might expect, which is to dig into more of the personal side. Sure. What influences uh, have, have brought leadership into your life and how do you put that into other, uh, into other folks on your team? We're going to save that for what I hope to be a second act with Anne and, and perhaps there will be many. So promise me that when you've got something interesting to share, you'll consider uh, letting me know. We'll bring you back on and we'll dig in a little bit more on the mentor side, a little bit more on the self-education side and, and allow for, uh, for the tribe to hear that side of you. But thank you so much for the time that you've given. I've learned a ton and I'm sure that we're all walking away with a better sense of what a chief policy officer does and how the work that you guys are uh, putting out into the world, the team that you're building empowers and paves the road for the business development that we all desperately need. Well, thank you. Thanks for the opportunity and look forward to to talking with you again in the future. Indeed. Thank you. Wow. Thanks a ton for checking out this episode, Solar Warrior. If you were a relative Luddite on this topic, like me, then you likely just massively upped your game on policy and government relations. Would you let Ann and I know on LinkedIn or Twitter? It's so easy to tag us and to shoot a quick message. You're going to be there anyway, thinking about what everyone else is doing on this lovely Thursday or Friday rather than doing your work. So since you're on one of these social media platforms learning, in quotes, why don't you go ahead and just give me a shout out? I love hearing from you and your feedback makes Suncast better. It really does. If you have a recommendation for a guest on Suncast, Don't hesitate to reach out and connect us. I'm always looking for more inspiring and informative conversations. 
To learn more about today's guest or past episodes, simply click on the listen link at mysuncast.com. That'll take you to the episodes page where you'll get show notes, social media and website links, and other goodies covered in each and every episode. All the ways to contact me are also there at mysuncast.com. And hey, while you're there, I do hope that you'll check out our Suncast Tribe, where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on the member button to learn how to gain access to uncut interviews, tribe exclusives that don't make it into the public Suncast feed. Get a chance to just talk with me directly. And of course, when you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll be notified when the next episode is out. You know, I'm so happy that you chose to be here again this week. And I hope that you'll join me again next week as I welcome a couple of young and up-and-coming entrepreneurs who are really changing the world around them for the better, just like you are. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.